Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. And today's special edition of Bloomberg Markets is focused on ESG and green finance. Let's bring in somebody who knows all about that now. Eugenia Jackson is head of ESG research and co-chair of the ESG committee for PGM Fixed Income, about $809 billion in assets under management. Eugenia, thanks for joining. You're co-chair of the ESG committee, head of ESG research. I can only imagine how much work that is. ESG now seems to permeate every single investment and every investment product. How do you manage all of that research and decision making on investments? Oh, hello, and thank you for having me. Um, Yes, sure. I mean, ESG, as you rightly said, ESG today is at the front and center of very many investment decisions. But it's also such a constantly evolving uh, space and things are shifting at a very increasing speed. So, and also, unlike in many other investment areas, in ESG, we are seeing a lot of subjectivity and a lot of preconceptions associated with the ESG. So most people would find it very difficult to keep pace with the ESG developments. So if I give you an example, uh, for example, the imperative of addressing climate change and transitioning to a low-carbon economy is changing business models, operations, products, services of many industries and companies all over the world. And energy companies are often vilified for their contribution to climate change. But these are also the industries that are adapting fast, they're transforming their business models through their investments in renewable power generation, investing in developing new technologies, exploring opportunities for credible offsetting programs. And these are, this, this creates investment risks and offers investment opportunities. But given the sheer scale of ESG topic and the pace of change, Investors need both expertise and agility to create value. So this is exactly what we are doing at Pigeon Fixed Income. And I'm very fortunate to be given this opportunity to contribute to this exciting and evolving area at Pigeon. So, Eugenia, I, you know, I'm going to talk to you about data, the data that's out there to support investors who really want to factor uh, ESG into their calculus here. For typical investing, you know, you go to the financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheet, uh, the cash flow statement. They're all audited data, and that can really help an, uh, analysts and investors make decisions. When you want to factor in ESG investing, talk to us about the quality of data that is out there for investors to help them, uh, you know, use in their analysis. Well, if I compare to what we had even 10 years ago in ESG, I would say that there's been a tremendous improvement in the, both the uh, amount and the quality of data that we have. However, you're absolutely right. Compared to what we get, the financial data that we get, ESG data is not sufficient. It's inconsistent. And it's still largely produced on a voluntary basis by companies. So there is uh, very little um, laws and regulations that would require the disclosure of the data. And and this is one of the major struggles when it comes to doing uh, ESG analysis and uh, trying to, you know, make investment decisions on the basis of ESG considerations. So this is why, you know, at Pigeon Fixed Income, we do not rely so much on third-party data and third-party ratings. We are collecting the data ourselves. We are doing our own research. We are reading the disclosures provided by the issuers. We are uh, engaging actively with the companies and with, uh, you know, sovereign issuers and others to get the information and to get our questions answered. And that's how we are collecting, uh, analyzing, and incorporating uh, this information. 
information into our analysis. If we only relied on... Well, I was just going to say, what do you prioritize? Is it outcomes? Is it how much change that that investment might effectuate? Is it something else? How do you decide what's important when it comes to the metrics? Um, that's a very good question. So uh, at Pigeon Fixed Income, we'll look at ESG factors from two different perspectives. So on one hand, we are looking at those ESG factors that we believe as an active fundamental investor, we believe are credit material, are financially material, that they can move this. These are the ESG factors that can move uh, bond prices, that can move spreads. And therefore, we integrate them directly into our credit analysis and in relative value discussions. Now, on the second, uh, on the other hand, we're also assessing how issuers, companies, and and their economic activities are impacting the environment and society. And for this, we are using our proprietary ESG impact ratings. So there are two uh, types of assessments, uh, ESG assessments that we are doing. And we feel that this is really important because, uh, you know, there are certain elements, certain ESG factors, which today they might not be uh, credit material or may not even be credit material in the foreseeable future. But over time, as more and uh, sustainability becomes bigger and bigger consideration for a growing number of investors and policymakers, these factors are going to become a lot more material. So this is also the forward-looking perspective. So, and this is how we, so how we look at um, the data that we have, how the factors that uh, we analyze, and then sort of we're looking at them from the materiality perspective, the financial materiality, as well as from the environmental and social impact perspective. Eugenia, just about 30 seconds. How has COVID-19 impacted ESG invested? Has that accelerated the trends or maybe even slowed it down? Uh, I think it has accelerated uh, very significantly because what it's done is really cast the spotlight on the social inequalities and the differences in working conditions and treatment of employees, suppliers, you know, across companies, industries, countries. And these are all social issues. The COVID really has brought the social issues to the forefront. And I think it's also highlighted the risks that investors face when it comes to supply chains. So um, this will have consequences for companies and their investors. And uh, I think it's just uh, really another tailwind uh, for ESG. Eugenia, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Just a fascinating discussion. Eugenia Jackson, head of ESG Research and co-chair of the ESG Committee for PGM Fixed Income. They have $809 billion under management. You can tell that they are clearly uh, focused and committed to ESG investing. And we're hearing more and more of that from more and more large global institutional investors. We'll have more on that coming up. This is Bloomberg. Today's show is a special edition of Bloomberg Markets. We're focusing on ESG and green finance. Joining us right now is Catherine Nice, Chief European Economist for PGM Fixed Income based in London. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, what a year. 2020 has been uh, just extraordinary in the second quarter, just seen bearing the full brunt of the pandemic. And then, of course, that snapback uh, in the third quarter here, fourth quarter, a little bit uncertain here. As it relates to Europe, Give us a sense of kind of how you think Europe's going to finish out the year, and then more importantly, how you think the economies uh, across the European uh, uh, unit and Union are going to perform in next year. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, it has been an extraordinary year, uh, I think, for, for all of us. Uh, we each have our own uh, unique story to tell. Uh, in Europe, the economy uh, has has 
has moved in ways that we've, we've never seen before. The hits that we had in Q2 was uh, really completely off the scale. We're going to end up with uh, GDP hits to the euro area that are around twice the size of what we saw during the global financial crisis. The good news is that it wasn't as bad as, as we saw in real time. And the bounce back in Q3 was really remarkable. On sort of seasonally adjusted annualized rates, we're looking at a number that's over 60%. Uh, a comparable number for the U.S. was a little over 30%. These are huge numbers. And very promising in that uh, it suggests that as we do move to a phase where the vaccine becomes more widely available, we could see some really strong bounce backs. Having said that, we are experiencing now a second wave in Europe. Uh, We've had a second round of restrictions put in place. These restrictions have been much less uh, severe and restrictive, uh, generally speaking, than they were in the spring. Uh, And, you know, encouragingly, the, uh, the numbers are looking good. We're seeing a turnaround. We're seeing a flattening in that curve. Uh, but that has come at an economic cost. So I think you are looking at a sort of W shape, sort of lopsided W, if you like, uh, for Europe, where we see GDP contracting in Q4 uh, and potentially also in, into Q1 if we think uh, that these lighter touch restrictions will need to stay in place post the holiday season. That would put Europe in a sort of double-dip recession uh, position, which, of course, raises risks of long-term scarring. Well, just as we're seeing an extraordinary amount of heterogeneity across the United States in different regions, we're obviously seeing that in Europe too. Now, if you look at the bond market, it tells you a vastly different story in Italy than it does in Spain, for example. How can we read what investors are anticipating for these various countries from the data? Absolutely. Uh, Great point. Qualitatively, of course, across Europe, you've seen a very similar pattern, this big hit, this very strong bounce back, and now, um, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a step, back, just a step back in Q4, as I just described. But looking underneath that, there is this uh, heterogeneity, and that's a real concern for the Euro area, because this is a monetary union that doesn't have a complete risk-sharing ability, so there's always this risk that the union uh, could be stressed and tested, um, where you're really seeing the divergence uh, to pick out, you know, some of the countries you just mentioned. Italy, Spain clearly hit very hard by the public health crisis very early on uh, in this pandemic, but also their economies were more vulnerable to the social distancing measures that, that were needed to help manage the virus. That was especially true in Spain. They have a very large uh, tourism sector and clearly, uh, you know, international travel. Uh, Brits, you know, my fellow friends and neighbors, they couldn't go to Spain in the summer. And, and that, you know, translated into these GDP hits. Whereas countries like Germany, which are much more manufacturing-based and which have really benefited from the rebound that you're seeing in China, 
their hits aren't, uh, to, to GDP have been much more muted, and they're recovering better now, even with these social restrictions in place, because the manufacturing sector is helping to kind of offset what's happening uh, in the services sector, you know, by by uh, construction, you know, through these uh, social distancing measures. So I think that is a concern that there is this, uh, you know, potential divergence uh, in the economic outlook across the European region. And I think that, you know, that really underpins a lot of the policy action that we've seen uh, since this pandemic, where European policymakers have been much more unified and coordinated than I think perhaps we're used to seeing them uh, respond in the face of these sorts of stresses that we've seen in, in, in the past, in the sovereign debt crisis, in the global financial crisis. Now they're acting decisively on monetary policy, decisively on fiscal, uh, to enable, uh, you know, the support from the stronger member states in the European mm. Union to help support and prop up some of those countries that have really been hit hard. Well, Catherine, just as you say that the euro has extended its advance to the strongest level since 2018 versus the dollar, so you certainly bring out the headlines on the Bloomberg. Thank you for joining us today. We'd love to talk to you more about the European economy as time goes on. That's Catherine Nice, Chief European Economist for PGM Fixed Income, joining us there. And again, Catherine Nice of PGM. This is Bloomberg. Let's bring in somebody very fascinating now, QMA. It's the quant division of PGIM, and the person who's the chairman and CEO of QMA is Andrew Dyson, who joins us now. By the way, QMA with almost $91 billion in assets under management. Andrew, thanks for joining. I can imagine with the election you had all sorts of models ready to go and all sorts of inputs ready to uh, press enter on, let's say, when we knew an outcome. How does the outcome of this election change the equation or the algebra or whatever goes into quant investing for you? Look, I think, uh, Bonnie, that, uh, you know, this, this is, in a sense, the potential for a regime change. Um, an element it was already um, discounted in the market, but but I think you've seen uh, many positives come through, and and uh, in terms of how the markets have responded, and certainly in terms of value, for example, which has you know been out of favour for a long time, uh, that the last few weeks have generally been a, a strong sort of rally, and that's a a common theme for quant. So I think you know you're likely to see I think those themes continue generally. And then one area I know we're particularly interested in is what does this mean for the future of ESG in the U.S.? And and that's certainly something where we could see a sea change, I think, in the next few years. Right. We even have a SAR now, John Kerry. (laughs) (laughs) So, Andrew, I guess, you know, I first started really getting questioned about uh, ESG investing probably a dozen years ago. And this was by my institutional investor clients in Europe, in London, in Frankfurt, uh, way before the U.S. So it seems to be ESG investing kind of was is much more firmly entrenched in Europe and maybe some other regions of the world. Where do you think it is here in the U.S.? And, and how, do you exp- how do you think it might play out over the next several years? And will a Biden administration maybe accelerate that? Paul, I completely agree. I mean, historically, I think the U.S., in terms of ESG adoption, whether it's for institutional or or for individuals, has really lagged 
you know, most of Europe, probably all of Europe now, and, and markets like Australia. Um, and, and some of that, I think, was, was just history and cultural. Um, but, but I think what's been very interesting is, is I actually think now client interest is actually really probably at all-time highs if, if you chart interest in the U.S. And what has held back uh, that, that turning into assets has been um, some of the, the sort of much more hostile regulatory environment that, that the DOL has, has sort of propagated over the last few, year, few years. And so if that's right, you can absolutely envisage that um, – that that regulatory environment, that regulatory tone will change to be much more favorable. And, and then I think that sort of pent-up demand uh, that, that we're seeing from a lot of clients, as they both institutional and individual clients, will come to the fore. So, so this really could be a turning point in terms of, of interest uh, from all sides, really, in the U.S. and, and be a, a four-year period where you do see a big catch-up in that gap between the U.S. and the rest of the world. Yes, I mean, the very fact that there's somebody dedicated to it now in the administration, assuming that, you know, all goes well and, and John Kerry does, you know, get into the position of, of climate, I guess, SAR or whatever they will call him, <laughs> will re-enter Paris, most likely, and there will be all sorts of... Th- will, will that impact any of your strategies? Well, we run all, all our strategies now very cognizant of ESG consideration. So... so uh, we, as you as you mentioned before, Bonnie, I mean we're quants, and so the way we would think about it is we would talk about a regime change. In other words, a yeah. situation where um, the future diverges from the past, and, and that would be very clearly a regime change. So I think the um, in, in any event in our strategies, we're already modelling the risk, if you like, or, or the potential of, of that sort of regime change, and I think the likelihood of that increased significantly. And so, yes, you would expect to see that cascade through if, if that happens. There'll be winners and losers in the market, and there'll be you know, changing demand patterns from clients as a result of that. Andrew, you know, I, I assume you folks at QMA have your version of the black box sitting on your desk here. How, what are the key inputs for the ESG part of your, uh, you know, your format, your formula? What are some of the key components? So we, we have a number of them. So um, we would look at, for example, elements of governance. So typically board independence has been one we've used actually for quite a long time. But in terms of the newer risks, we would particularly uh, give a high premium to CO2 emissions uh, and, and giving that weight. If you look historically, you know, companies have not had to pay for the externalities, if you like, for emitting CO2, that's likely to change. It's likely to require sort of business models. So, so we elevate that as, as a, a key sort of regime change risk, if you like. And so our models will therefore favor companies that otherwise have the same characteristics, but, but lower emissions. Um, and so you see that. But, but we also try and look in context at different industries. Because so I do think one of the other themes of ESG is, is a theme around customization. So underneath the letters, actually it means very different things for different people, and it means very different things for companies. So in our models, um, we, we try and have a much more industry-driven view rather than uh, one-size-fits-all. And certainly, I think, in terms of how we build portfolios for clients, we're likewise, we, we think customization is the future in this area as well. 
Well, and so in those cases, do you look across the globe? Is there an area where you find more candidates that fit your models? You know, I mean, is the United States in there at all? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, I, 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 for us, it's a global effort. I mean, of course, the United States is, is in there. Um, in both directions. I mean, there are fantastic companies doing great things and there are laggards as well, but that, that's true across all markets. I mean, ESG is now a global theme and, and I think it would be great to welcome the US fully to that party um, in terms of investing and in, and in terms of plants. Hey, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, Andrew Dyson, uh, Chairman and CEO of QMA. QMA is the quant division of PGM, they're about $91 billion under management. And, and uh, you know, Vani, I think one of the key things we learned from today is just how much growth there is in ESG investing, both on the buy side and the sell side, and companies themselves. Right, and there's such a mandate for it now across, you know, from family offices to, you know, endowments and so on, you just need to need to be able to do this. Every every shop needs to have an ESG arm and uh, a quant ESG arm even better, huh? Yeah, it's interesting. And one of the aspects here at Bloomberg is trying to make sure that uh, we have the, the data available uh, for clients who want to really incorporate ESG uh, into their investment analysis. And on the FA function, there's actually an ESG tab. So when you're doing your financial analysis, you can look at the ESG data. So that's pretty interesting as well. Well, the next story just fascinates me. You know, you think about the electric vehicle uh, business and you think Tesla and you think about where are the big U.S. automakers? Where are they in their electric vehicle business? Well, General Motors recently, you know, made a plan to take a stake, an equity stake in clean energy trucking startup Nikola Corporation. But that plan has fallen apart. And quite frankly, I'm confused. But I know somebody who's on top of it. And that's Tim O'Brien. Senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Tim, it was a promising deal, but a strange one. But what's even stranger here is that General Motors has kind of pulled out of the deal with Nikola. What's going on? Well, they're pulling out, Paul, because it's become an embarrassment. And and the curious thing in, in, in this whole transaction is GM had every opportunity not to do the deal. It, it uh, famously began unraveling in September after Hindenburg research, a short seller, published a research report pointing out a whole raft of problems with Nikola's leadership and, and um, statements by, uh, by its founder, Trevor Milton. And uh, that ultimately forced um, Mary Barra and GM to step back. But it wasn't September when a lot of controversial things about Nikola was known, uh, were known. That goes back as far as July when Issues were raised about claims that it made for trucks it was producing, uh, that, that um, it, it, it said there were uh, heightened design and um, uh, energy efficiencies around that vehicle that weren't the case. Uh, other things came out about Milton's past over the summer. So the fodder was out there, and the real question that comes up in all this is what sort of due diligence did GM actually do when they decided to give its corporate blessing to a three-year-old startup that was still an essentially an unproven truck producer? Right. And why don't we know that? Surely that should be transparent. Well, it should be. I mean, I think, you know, there's now the, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Justice Department are both now reportedly looking into um, some of Nicola's public statements and Trevor Milton's public statements. Uh, there are probably uh, legitimate legal reasons 
for GM and for Barrett not wanting to be more more forthcoming in the moment. That's an argument that, that could be made. Uh, the problem is, uh, I think GM has some problems of its own in this transaction. Uh, it, it came to GM and Mary Barra's attention through Steve Gursky. Uh, he's a former GM and uh, executive who became an investor and invested in Nikola and was very um, uh, public in his statements that Nikola was the real thing. It was Steve Gursky who brought this deal through GM's doors. So was there an arm's length transaction here? When, when Mary Barra says that her team and the company's accountants and lawyers and, and financial wizards scrutinized this before GM tied up with Nikola, well, did they really? We don't know. And I think there, it would be useful for the company to be more transparent and offer a, a more public timeline of what occurred here. And Tim, you know, for for background, I I used to work with Steve Gursky way way back in the day when he was a young auto analyst at Payne Weber, and I know he's enjoyed a very good career in the auto industry. Government uh, folks know him from the bailout. Plus, Mary Barra, who again has a very good reputation. You just wonder how. You know, people like these could put such a odd transaction together. Do you think this is going to weigh on Mary Barra's reputation and maybe even that of General Motors? Well, I think they've taken a reputation. Both of them have taken a reputational hit. You know, I agree with you, Paul. I think Mary Barra is an incredibly inspiring executive. She's one of the few women to run a Fortune 500 company. She's the daughter of a GM tool and die craftsman. She's entirely self-made. She went to work for GM when she was 18, went on to get a degree in electrical engineering and an MBA from Stanford. Uh, she's been GM CEO for almost seven years, and she's handled a bunch of thorny problems very deftly. But this, this, this is a real problem for her because she's been opaque about it. Uh, her decision-making here was clearly flawed, and, and she's not really coming clean about what led to to a debacle. This, this, there's no allegations of fraud here. This is not going to cause legal headaches for her. Uh, she actually engineered a very smart financial deal for GM. So there's no money being lost, but there is reputational damage that I think they should think about. And is it also a sign, Tim, of the desperation of sort of older legacy companies to try and get in on what they see as something that might be disrupting them and not missing out on that? Well, you know, it's, this is classic in corporate America when upstarts find new markets and they get um, lush valuations from the market. We saw it, uh, you know, a decade ago when banks uh, began, you know, rushing to create Internet-only banks under new brands but owned by the banks to sort of capitalize on uh, the market's uh, enthusiasm for standalone, digital-only financial uh, services companies. And... It's happening now clearly in this sector. Tesla's obviously enjoyed a big run-up. But at one point in June, Nikola had a market capitalization that was larger than Ford's. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the auto companies are seeing this. They want to capture that value. But at the end of the the day, a well-run company and a well-run corporation captures value by making great products and being very profitable. And if, if legacy automakers want to be competitive in this new space, They've got to be shrewd about who they partner with, and they've got to be willing to embrace authentic innovation. It's interesting, Tim. I was talking about this with uh, Kevin Tynan, Bloomberg Intelligence auto analyst, and you know, it's just we had this ongoing conversation. It just feels like the big automakers say, let's just take the big three in, in Detroit, 
are just so far behind in this EV that they're ceding the market to Tesla. But Kevin and other auto analysts will come back and say, hey, when there's a big enough market to make these things profitably, really profitably, the big three will be there. Is that kind of the feeling you think is permeating through Detroit? I, I think so. And, and I think there's some truth to that. You know, the, the reality is that Tesla's not necessarily at a point right now where it can scale its production at all on the order of a Ford or a GM. Um, I think at some point Tesla will, will probably need a production partner if it really wants to become a, a mammoth producer of vehicles at a lower price point than it, than it sells right now. Um, on the other hand, I don't think legacy companies can just sit back and say, we have production advantages, we have marketing advantages, we have scale, we're authentically global, therefore we can let someone else innovate, and then we'll pick them off when they're mature enough. That's a dangerous strategy for any corporation in any industry, and we've seen this in media, we've seen it mm-hmm. in traditional manufacturing and other sectors where people wait too long to innovate. Well, Tim, thank you. You're always innovating with your columns, so we appreciate it. <laughs> Tim O'Brien is senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and his column today. Mary Barra needs to explain GM's Nicola misstep. Pretty much speaks for itself. Do have a read of it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.